Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a guest that a lot of people have told me about, uh, Stephen N. Ostad. He's a distinguished professor, a department chair at University of Alabama at Birmingham. We're going to be talking about the biology of aging. So, Steve, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere, actually, at this point. Oh, good. So what, uh, how long have you been studying aging and what got you interested in it? So I've been studying aging for about over 30 years and I got into it completely by accident. It never was a particular interest of mine, but believe it or not, I was doing some field work in South America when by accident, I discovered that the animals I was doing the field work on, which were opossums, very, very similar to the ones we have in the U.S., I discovered that they aged about as fast as a mouse. And this was uh, completely unanticipated for me. It was a huge surprise. I got so interested in it that I pretty much abandoned what the project that I've been working on opossums before. Because I had always assumed that something like an opossum that's about the size of a house cat would age at about the same rate as a house cat. So it would live maybe 10, 10, 10 wild. And in fact, they were living more like 18 months and getting cataracts and losing muscle tone and uh, uh, getting all kinds of uh, dental problems, basically falling apart in a body. And it was such an unexpected observation that it made me curious about why things age at the rate they do. First of all, why they age at all. Um, And that's turned into uh, something that I've now been thinking about for over 30 years. Well, what, uh, what context do you study aging in? In people, or is there a particular animal that you look at instead? I work on animals, and I work on everything from traditional laboratory animals to really unusual animals that I chose because they had some unique feature of aging. And if you think about it, most of the standard laboratory animals that we use to study aging, mice, for instance, uh, are are terrible at it. They're terribly unsuccessful at it. They fall apart, you know, very quickly. It's one of the reasons that people study them is they only live two or three years. Um, but we already live 80 years, and I, I've always thought it is odd that we would focus our research on animals that were so unsuccessful at aging in the hopes that we could figure out ways to make another animal, ourselves, that's very successful at aging, do even better. And so for years, I've advocated an, a complementary approach where we look for animals that do it better than we do and try to figure out what it is exactly that they do better so that we can figure out how to potentially make ourselves age more successfully. Well, one question, I mean, is it successful just because you live longer or, you know, in, when you look at animals, however long they live, do they tend to have a better health span than people? Meaning, you know, they... Do they do okay up until very close to the point where they die? Well, see, I think it depends on whether you're studying animals in a laboratory or animals in nature. 
And nature is a very, very challenging place to live. So animals in nature really have to stay pretty much in tip-top condition uh, because as soon as they start to decline at all, you know, they can't find their food or a predator gets them or something. On the other hand, if we study animals in the laboratory, for instance, if we study mice in my laboratory, a mouse can be deaf, blind, crippled. All it needs to do to stay alive is be able to stumble across its, its shoebox sized cage and find a little bit of food or water. So I think one of the reasons, one of the other reasons to study animals that are successful at age is that typically they've been successful in nature and all the rigors that that imposes, which means that you have to stay really, really healthy. Would you like an example? Yeah, I, I would. I, I'd also like you to, um, when you compare a lab mouse versus a wild mouse, what does it look like for them as they get older? No, but but uh, give me your uh, example first. That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. So let me answer that question because that's an interesting question. So like I say, laboratory, mice in the laboratory live two or three years. Um, and in the wild, they live on average three or four months. And the oldest mouse that you're going to find in the wild is maybe a year or a little more. So it's really a wholly different thing. The, the sorts of things that happen to mice in their second year of life in the laboratory are things that never happen uh, to a wild mouse because a wild mouse never lives that long. Mm. Let me give you an example of an animal that's really successful and really successful despite all the rigors of living in uh, the wild. And I'll take an example of of a small bat. Now we know that small bats, bats that are a quarter the size of a mouse, can live 30 or 40 years in the wild. And if you think about it, they spend, uh, they, they fly 50 to 100 miles a night. They've got to catch an insect every three to five seconds to keep from starving to death. They have to have the agility, the muscle strength, the endurance. Uh, they've also got to avoid predators. They've got to um, keep from dying of diseases. Um, they've got to keep their uh, hearing even because small bats use um, echolocation. They use sonar basically to hear. So as soon as their hearing starts to go, they can no longer catch uh, their prey. So something like that is an animal. Now, a normal uh, mammal of that size would live perhaps two years. So here's something that lives 10 to 20 times longer than you would expect an average mammal to live. And it does it in the wild as opposed to nature. So that to me is an example of something that has happened in nature that they do much, much better. You know, bats preserve their hearing better than humans do. It's, it's remarkable. Hmm. So what about, uh, I don't know, traditionally long-lived creatures, uh, you know, redwood forest trees or tortoises or things like that? Do you look at those? Um, well, I think, I think you have to put the trees in a different category. And the reason is that vegetation, something like a tree, doesn't live uh, a life in the same sense that we For instance, one of the older trees that we know about is a bristlecone pine, and they can live into over 4,000 years. But if you look at an old bristlecone pine like that, it's mostly dead. There'll be a thin strip of living tissue around, uh, around the trunk and maybe going up to one branch where there are a few leaves and that's a very, very different kind of longevity where 95% of you can die, but there's a little bit still left alive. So I don't, 
know really how to think about aging in, in things like trees. But things like tortoises, that, that, that is a, that's interesting. That's a really interesting phenomenon. How do tortoises live as long as they do? Is it simply that everything about them is going at a very slow pace? Their, uh, their hearts are beating at a slow pace. Their muscles are contracting at a slow pace. We don't really know. Um, in fact, we don't really even know how long some of these giant tortoises live. I'm sort of a student of longevity records. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that every time one of these giant tortoises dies, it's either 175 or 185 years old. Usually it was brought to a zoo by Charles Darwin, even if that zoo was a place that was no, nowhere that Charles Darwin was ever known to have visited. Really? So, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of mythology around the, uh, surrounding old tortoises. They live a long time. But exactly yeah. how long they live, we don't really know that. So what correlations are there when you look at uh, you know, a vast number of animals of different ages and you know, bodies? I'm sure they, they try to correlate uh, you know, how big the animal is, sure. metabolism rate. Sure. So one of, the, one of the most robust features in nature is that if you look at a group of animals that, that, that are uh, that defines some sensible evolutionary group. Like if you look at all mammals or if you look at all birds or if you look at all clams or if you look at all salamanders, it turns out that the larger ones typically are longer live than the smaller ones. But, but that's only a trend and there are dramatic exceptions to that. And it's those exceptions that I think are the species that we can learn the most from. The bats are, are one of the big exceptions. Uh, I invented something uh, uh, a number of years ago called the longevity quotient. And the longevity quotient, it's kind of like IQ. It tells you sort of how long you live uh, relative to how long you should be expected to live if you're that body size. And so a dog, for instance, dogs live, have a longevity quotient of one, which means they live about average for a mammal of their size. Um, we live about four and a half times as long as a mammal of our size. So we're pretty oh, wow. successful. Um, if you take something that's about the same size that we are, like a mountain lion, it only lives 20 or 25 years. So we're doing really, really well. Uh, if you take, on the other hand, if you take uh, one of these small bats, they can live 10 times as long as they should for the body. So, so there's this general trend, but it's the exceptions to the trend that are very interesting. One of the species that I work on is a species of clam. And uh, it's, it's, it's called Arctica Icelandica is its scientific name. It really doesn't have a very uh, good common name. But you could hold one comfortably in your hand. It's, uh, it's maybe five or six inches across. Uh, they have been known to live over 500 years. Right. To me, is fascinating because... Um, your listeners probably don't realize this, but, but clams have a beating heart. Oh, wow. Clams have muscles like we have. They, those muscles need to keep operating. You know, one of the more general features of aging is that muscles weaken over time. Well, I've studied the muscle that opens and closes the clam shell. And if it doesn't work right, you've got a dead clam. So that muscle has been able to function appropriately for over 500 years, just like the heart has had to be able to continue to beating, to beat appropriately for over 500 years. To me, there's a secret that these animals have that we could potentially learn a great deal from. Well, 
what that is? I mean, what to, what? Well, I know, I know one of the things, I know one of the things that, so inside your cells, your cell, basically everything that goes on inside your cells is due to proteins. They make all of the chemical run, but in order for those proteins to work appropriately, they have to be folded very precise origami. And as those proteins age, they start to lose that precise folding. And as they do that, quite often they will clump together. It's this kind of protein clumps that we think are behind things like Alzheimer's, certain types of muscular dystrophy. Also, we think behind a lot of the common features of aging. So one of the things that this clam does is it has something in its tissue. We haven't been able to figure out exactly what it is yet. It has something in its fish, its tissues that keeps proteins from misfolding. And it even, it works not only with proteins from the clam itself, but we've taken human protein, like the, the, like the one that clumps up in Alzheimer's. Put that in sort of the juice from the clam if we squeeze all the juice out of the muscles and it no longer misfolds like that. So we think that there's something in this clam's tissues that give it the secret for maintaining precisely folded proteins which you need for pretty much everything. You need it to repair your DNA. You need it to produce energy. You need that kind of thing or basically everything to operate in your cells. So now quite embarrassingly, we have had a heck of a time finding out what that is, but we're very, very interested. We found out lots of things it isn't. So I had a whole list of things that it could be from what we know about the way that proteins fold and how they stay folded. Uh, and we're gradually working our way through that list, and we've eliminated most of the possibilities, not all of them, that we know about. This so it's not, a, it's not an absence of a chemical that ensures, well, maybe it is. I mean, could, it, could it also be, like in people, the absence of uh, you know, certain molecules that ensure that folding is done properly? Um, what, you know, what, well, what would it happen in people? Like if you think about it, it's kind of well, we, we have, you know, in our, in, our, in our basic biology, in our genes, are many, many um, other chemicals that, that are there to battle against uh, misfolded proteins. They will either help the protein misfold, or, I mean, fold correctly if it starts to misfold, or else they will degrade the protein and we'll make some more. So there's this constant turnover of proteins in your cells. Gradually over time though, the whole machinery that sort of maintains and recycles damaged proteins uh, degrades just like everything else does with aging. But somehow in these clams, it doesn't. And uh, that's, the, that's the kind of secret that we'd like to know. Now, is that the only thing that uh, causes us to age? Probably not. There are probably other things. But that's one thing we've been able to really put our finger on in these exceptionally long-lived clam. You call them clam fusula? <laughs> no, that's good though. That's good. My my, um, my wife has wanted me to, uh, to to market a skin cream or something called Clamour. Hmm. <laughs> huh? Interesting. So, so, it, so why has it been so hard to little... find out what's in the clam that, that causes these proteins to? Uh... Well, because we don't know a great deal about clam biology. We don't have a good, uh, we don't have this well-defined genome. We don't uh, know uh, these things. It's, it's funny. You can go out and collect them by the hundreds. You can keep them in the laboratory. But the, the study of these things is just starting to get underway. 
And um, one of the things that's happened since I've been in the field is we've discovered more and more and more of these really interesting and unusual animals. And over time, we're gradually developing more and more tools to be able to interrogate them about exactly what it is that allows them to live so long. Hmm. I mean, are you able to, you know, the clam juice, are you able, does it only work in the context of a living clam? Or have you been able to, no. like, in, in vitro in the lab, make it work as well? Yeah, and then, uh, we've done all of the work in the lab. So what we what we do is we basically will will uh, um, squeeze all the juice out of the clam muscle because we think the muscle is a key thing, and then that's what we do these experiments on in the laboratory. So we don't really uh, work with living clams. In fact, you can't re- surprisingly. So you, there's a question you haven't asked me, which is how do you know that clam lives 500 years? You know that that's kind of a key question, and it turns out that clams have growth rate kind of like trees now unfortunately yeah yeah unfortunately uh they're in the inside of the cell so you can't really count these rings from the outside of the cell so what you have to do is you have to slice the shell through the middle polish it etch it go through a lot of detail and then examine it very carefully under a microscope to see how long it's lived um but you can do it very, very precisely, and we can count these rings backwards, and we can go, okay, there's the ring from 1900, there's the ring from 1800, there's the ring from 1700, until we go back to before Shakespeare was born. Well, what about in looking at, uh, I mean, are older clams, do they upregulate the substance, or is it present more younger clams? I would think by older ones, it comes more into play, right? Or no, I don't know. That's a, that's a really interesting question, and it's a question we haven't asked yet. Um, yeah, because it we, could be um, the clam never gets an old phenotype, and that's why it lives so long. That could be one answer. Or you know, once it gets older, then the you know this these the substance gets up upregulated and it keeps it in a okay state, but a a state of repair that's just enough to keep it alive. Right, you're absolutely right, and we're not sure which of those alternatives it is. One of the things that we do know is that these clams, even the oldest ones, are still reproducing. So they at least haven't aged physiologically to the point where they can no longer reproduce. In fact, the older ones seem to reproduce even more than the younger ones. Really? Yeah. So what would make the clam die? I mean, are old clams old or they look the same as young clams? No, no. Most of the clams, most of the clams are, are younger. Um, the older clam, the older you go, the rarer they are. So there are certainly accidents that happen to them. Things that eat them, I'll probably don't eat them very often when they get to be uh, larger. But there are pollutions. There may be a climatic event. The ocean temperatures may have a sudden change. It's interesting that the same species of clam actually exists in the Baltic oceans, where basically the, which is the, the, the toilet of Europe where all, all the rivers uh, dispense with their pollution. And there they only live 30 to 50. So probably environmental accidents um, is what kills them. It certainly doesn't seem to be anything that's associated with age. We haven't found that the older the clams are, the more likely they are to die. That may be, but we just haven't looked at enough clam to be able to tell that. About, I mean, like, Okay, when clams are in a certain area, are they really widely distributed? 
or they, they grouped in clusters at the bottom of a, you know, of the ocean and, uh, you know, in a very shallow area, like near the beach. Like, again, what's their distribution whenever they appear in a given area? So they live between about uh, uh, 10 meters and a couple hundred meters depth, so pretty broad uh, depths. They live geographically all the way from the Baltics to um, Cape Cod, so all, all across the North Atlantic. They don't tend to live in exceptionally deep water. They like water that's fairly cold. It's around, you know, I'd say probably 40 to 50 degrees. Um, but the interesting thing is that, it, and they tend to live just beneath the sediment on the bottom. The interesting thing is there are other species of clams that might be sitting there in the sediment right next to them that only live 30 or 40 years. So yeah. one of the ways we're approaching trying to figure out what it is is that we're taking species of clams that live in the same area that, let's say, only live 100 years or only live 30 years or only live 10 years. And by looking at all of those species, trying to figure out what it is exactly that's so unique about this long live door. But again, has anyone studied, you know, clams of different ages to see how they differ? Like, I know it's, this sounds really silly, but it would probably be a good experiment. You know, have you ever tried to eat the clams that you... Uh, you pull out, you know, you're looking at the shells, so maybe the innards are, I mean, I don't know, like, you know, I wonder if, uh, and I don't know why I'm saying this, but I just wonder if the real old ones would, uh, would taste very different from the younger ones, and maybe that's a quick, quick way of telling, oh, okay, well, something's going on, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah it would make it hard to study the after you ate it, though, but you're, you raise a good point. Are, are the tissues tougher, you know? We're focusing on this one, this big muscle that opens and closes the the shell, which, by the way, when you eat a scallop, you're just eating that muscle uh, from a different kind of clam. Um, that's an interesting thing. Would it be tougher? Would it be more fibrous? Does the muscle look exactly the same way? Part of the problem is that the animals that are, once you get over about 150 years old, it's very hard to tell from the outside how old they were. So uh, they do keep growing, but they keep growing by a smaller and smaller amount. So it's very hard to say, okay, I've got a thousand clams. I'm going to pick 50 that are 100 years old and 50 that are 200 and 50 that are 300. That's the kind of thing that you're talking about. And I'd love to be able to do that. But that's a very, very difficult experiment. Um, we almost have to have a different way of aging them to do that experiment. Yeah, because I would think a clam that's a couple hundred years old would have bioaccumulated all kinds of stuff versus a young one, you know? I mean, even if you—that's a—that's a good point. Yeah, once, once, if you had looked at its tissues and you and you looked for, I don't know, for inorganic toxins, you're you're right. There's probably, you know, the interesting thing. I got into these clams much by accident because these oceanographers uh, called me and said we studied clams that live a long time. Would you to collaborate? And what they were using them for is for examining ancient ocean temperature. Mm. So for instance, um, the clam growth rings can be broader or narrower. They're, they're almost like a barcode. Depends on how much food there was in one year, what the water temperatures was like. And you can take, a let's say, a clam that was 300 years old, but when you scooped it up off the bottom, maybe you scooped off uh, 100 shells of dead clams. And what you can do is if you cut those open, you can actually overlap the growth rings and see maybe this one died 200 years ago. And if you do series of these overlapping growth rings, 
people have actually used these clams to try to understand the ocean temperatures for as long as 1200 years. Yeah, they're like ice cores, Arctic ice cores in a way. You can see the history exactly, of the area. Exactly, exactly. Where do they tend to live longer? Like in, the, in seabeds that are rarely disturbed or, you know, like in the tidal area, I would think there'll be a lot of cycling of stuff. But, right. you know, maybe it's yeah, deeper they areas offshore, no. Yeah, they don't tend to, near shore, they don't, that's not where they are. The, the, the longest live ones that we found so far have been on the, off the southern coast of Iceland. Uh, but not not near shore, but you know farther mm-hmm. offshore. Um, and these are things that you know that <laughs> they're caught. You know the way they uh, catch these things is they just scoop up large chunks of the ocean floor, so they're getting a lot of other clams. In fact, the the common table clam, uh, which we found out lives to a little bit over a hundred years old. Nobody known that before. They are often right next to them. So uh, so that's. That's another clam. Actually, I've given talks on this before. At the end, people say, I'm never eating clam chowder again. <laughs> and I almost I, I, feel like that myself. Well, I don't know. I love clams, but yeah, it's sad that hopefully they reproduce fast enough that you can you can harvest them and still eat them. Well, the, the, the shorter live ones, it, certainly if clams live 500 years, they're not going to be reproducing too fast. Actually, we can kind of tell from the, uh, the growth rings when they uh, – how long it takes them to become sexually mature. And it oh, looks really? like it's about 30, 30 to 40 years. Whoa, it's a long time. It's, I, nothing, it's nothing compared to the Greenland shark. I don't know if you've heard about the Greenland shark, but this is a shark that also lives uh, in the northern Atlantic. Is that and, the one that retains uh, its urine in its body and it kind of secretes it out and sweats it out? Oh, well, a lot of sharks do that. But this oh, one does okay. it for as much as 400 years. So the interesting thing about the Greenland shark, now these don't, sharks don't have growth rate. What the, the way they figured out how long these guys are is by doing some chemistry on the, the kernel of their eye lens, which is formed um, before they're born. Hmm. And they've done radiocarbon dating on these and found that they live, you know, 250, 300 years sort of routinely. And some okay. of them live as much as 400 but the more interesting part of their biology to me is they can, again, they can tell from a change in the growth rate when they start to reproduce. Usually when things start to reproduce, if they're still growing, their growth will slow considerably because they're using all that energy for reproduction. These things apparently don't start to reproduce until they're about 150 years old. Wow. Sheesh. Huh. Well, so, um, interesting. I mean, do you think there's the clams, you know, you said the 500-year-old clams are very rare, but, I mean, if you're studying, like, 30 to 50-year-old ones or 30, you know, up to 100, I mean, why can't you look at another species that only lives, let's say, to 100 and look at, uh, if they're more prevalent, look at those and see, you know, what chemicals are in them when they're 30 years old versus 80 and the prevalence and I mean, maybe they can be looked sequenced? Well, we, we could do that. In fact, that's kind of what we do. You know, if you just think statistically, if you go out there and you catch a bunch of animals at random in the wild, most of them will be fairly young because there's going to be some death rate over time. And so the older they get, the rarer they will be. Um, But uh, we try to actually, we prefer to work on reasonably young adults of all of these species. Because we figure whatever there is uh, in the in the cells or the tissues of something that allows it to live 500 years, it's got to be evident early on. 
because yeah. some things, you know, half of them will die every year and then life expectancy is not very long. Some of things is 90% of them uh, survive every year. Some of them 99%, whatever's causing that has got to be there all along. So the older the animals are that you study, the more likely there's going to be something wrong that, you're, it, that might mislead you about what's actually going on. It's like studying uh, 110-year-old people. You know, that's kind of interesting, but what do you compare them to? You know, what you really want to know is what did those 110-year-old, how were those 110-year-old people different from the people that only lived to be 80 when they were 30 years old, when you could look at them both at the same age? Right, but rare is rare, so you have to go with the, uh, you know, the younger ones. Yes. And extrapolate yeah. from there, yeah. Yeah, that's, usually, that's what we do, is we typically just... Uh, I mean, you know, if you think about it, what would, what would change after reproductive age, after their, you know, ex- like, like how long is their, their gestation? I don't even know how clams find each other in the wild, but how long is their gestation and how many well, they, brood, every, broods or children do they have? Uh, millions. So <laughs> the way that they reproduce is that there are male clams and female clams. And the female clams basically um, secrete or uh, eject millions of eggs every year into the water, and the male clams eject millions of sperm, and they need to find one another. Okay. So if you think about a population, <clears throat> let's just imagine that their average uh, lifespan is about 250 years. Um, that means because they're not overrunning the globe, that every 250 years, uh, two clams will have two offspring, and which means that they may have millions of eggs or sperm that they're producing each year, but most of those things are not making it. You know, the overwhelming majority are not making it. Well, maybe they're trying to breed all the time, but most of the uh, sperm and the, uh, you know, the eggs are being lost, or they don't find each other, or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, that's one of these things with, with external fertilization like this, is a lot of the gametes are going to be never find the other sex or never going to turn into embryos um i mean are there people that have clam farms i figure they would be and they they're breeding clams of some sort right yeah but these yeah like oysters they they do oyster farms all the time right although they do them kind of in the in the ocean in the real ocean because we're not really very good at replicating ocean water but what they will do is they'll you know they'll they'll uh fence off an area of the ocean and uh, have uh, oysters breeding on uh, on strings, basically on pieces of rope out there. We haven't been able to do that for uh, these clams. Even the giant clams, you know, the ones that are the size of a coffee table, those things are actually uh, grown in, uh, in clam farm. Surprisingly, oh, wow. they don't live very long. Um, they, they, they live maybe 50 years. I guess there's a lot that you need to know backgrounds in order to help you. Like, you know, have, have these, has the genome of the clams been sequenced and, uh, you know. It has, and, but it hasn't, a very good job has not been done. So that's one of the things I'm working on now is getting the genome of these various species of clams that live various lengths of times all sequenced. Because that's really what's holding us up right now. Um, it's, it's, it's keeping us from identifying suspected molecules that might be involved in this protein form. I have an idea of what kind of thing we're looking for, but we don't know yet enough about the genome to know if, if they're reproducing them. We know, you know, one of the genomes that has been well done is oyster genome. 
And one of the things that we know about the oyster genome, and they're not long lived, they're a pretty short lived clam, though, is they, there are these molecules called heat shock proteins that are involved in helping proteins maintain their folding. And they have a massive number of those things. So we're thinking that it's either the number or the, or the kind of these proteins that are really long life. But we haven't really identified that yet because we, we need to get a good genome sequence as a place to start. Not just of that one, but of some relatives that are shorter live that we can compare them to. Hmm. Well, very good. What, um, I know I, you know I took us down the clam path and <laughs> a lot of time went into it. What, what do you expect you're going to be able to figure out in the next uh, few years? In regards hope, to aging in general, or these clams. Well, I I hope we can figure out exactly how they what what they're making that that um, prevents this protein misfolding because that actually could turn out to be therapeutic for something like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's or something, which would be the the the, the incredible irony of finding in an animal that doesn't even have a brain something that could treat some of the worst human neurological. But I, I think in the next few years in the field generally not focusing on the clam, that we're going to discover a number of things that can actually treat the aging, the actual aging process. And that's important because unlike treating individual diseases, if you actually can treat the aging process, uh, you can prevent or delay dozens of things that go wrong with aging at the same time. And we have a lot of leads these days. Um, for the longest time, we only knew a few ways to make animals stay healthy longer. Now we know literally dozens of ways. Some of those are not going to turn out to work in people, but I think some of them will. So I think we're looking at probably, uh, well, there was a, a, a paper written a few years ago that predicted that, that people born in the 21st century will have a life expectancy of 100 years. And I think that's a real possibility. Yeah, do you think, uh, I don't know if you're evaluating this, but are you evaluating the maximum possible lifespan? And is there such a thing for people, for, for other creatures? Well, I guess for certain creatures, it's infinite, given the right conditions. But do uh, you think there's one for people? And if so, what is it, do you guess? Uh, no, I don't really think there is one. We used to think we knew what it was for, for mice, and then we found out that if we tweak this gene, it's, increases. I don't think we know. You know, the, I, I, have this, I have this wager with a demographer, uh, J.L. Shansky, of a billion dollars on when we'll have the first 150-year-old person. And um, we're not going to get a 150-year-old person ever by getting better at diagnosing and treating cancer or heart disease. The only way we're going to do that is if we find to treat the aging for itself. And I think we right. will. <laughs> is that the maximum right. ever? I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say. Um, but it's certainly a lot longer than the maximum currently. Yeah. Well, very good, Steve. This has been a great call. I, I'm very interested in this subject. Uh, yeah, I think it's really cool what you're doing, and I hope that, uh, I don't know, you find some really interesting stuff in your Thanks research. For what, what, yeah, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, you could go to my, um, actually, my website, stephenosted.com, um, and you'll find okay. a, a lot about it there, and that will give you uh, links to other places. That they can find out about, or they could go to my Wikipedia page. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been nice talking with you, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.